Thanks, Peter. Thanks, worship team. Again, for leading us in worship thus far. And we'll continue now through the teaching of God's Word. So I invite you to please open up with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. We'll continue our series there. In fact, we're, we're coming to a close on our series in the book of Titus. This morning will be our, our second to last sermon here. But just because we are coming to a close, that in no way means as Paul put the pens down. He does not let off the pen, even though he's coming close to the end of his letter. Last Sunday night at Community Spirit here at church, we had the beautiful opportunity to have and listen to several testimonies, testimonies of, of Bill and Phil and, and Crystal and Noren. And it was a great opportunity, it was a great time of, of sharing and fellowship where we could praise God for what he has done in the lives of these people. And this morning we have the chance to look at in God's word that change that has taken place in their lives, the change that has taken place in the lives of everyone that calls God their saviour. The passage that we're going to look at this morning in particular, if you boil it down, you could sum it up with three beautiful words. He saved us. He saved us saved us. They are the first three words of of Titus chapter 3 verse 5. They are the summary, the center point of these five verses that we're going to look at this morning. And really you could say that they are a summary of the gospel as a whole. They are the summary of the whole message of the Bible. He saved us. So this morning we are talking, we're talking about salvation, we're talking about being saved. Outside the Christian church, the idea of, of being saved isn't very common. We can think about the physical sort of aspect of of being saved, only those circumstances where you're in desperate conditions and need saving whether you are drowning at the beach and someone comes in to save you, or whether you are wandering into traffic and someone comes and and pushes you to safety, these physical circumstances whereby we are saved. If we are not aided in these situations by someone else's decisive actions, then we will perish. But in terms of our spiritual condition... Most people don't seem to have the same sense of urgency as though it were the physical sense. We don't sense that we are wandering into a riptide at the beach and that we are going under, or that we are walking out onto a road with cars going past at 100 kilometers an hour. Most people tend to think, I'm fine, what do I need to be saved? Why would I need salvation? The Bible teaches us that we, the human race, have a problem. And it is far greater than getting caught in the worst fire, getting mauled by the biggest shark at the beach, or getting into the worst car accident possible. We have a problem. But thankfully there is a solution. If you are sitting here this morning and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never put your hope in the Lord, and this message is for you, 
if you've heard and you've trusted in the message of the gospel, but in any way your worship and your wonder and your awe at God of what He has done on your behalf has begun to wane, if you have begun to cool in your affections towards the Lord, this message is for you. God came to save sinners. He saved us. Please turn with me, if you've not already, to Titus chapter 3. And we'll be reading, starting in verse 3 this morning. The Word of God says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Saviour and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. God saves sinners by His grace, for His glory, so that we might be renewed in His image and spend an eternity with Him. That is a summary of our text this morning. And I want to concentrate on this phrase, He saved us, and spend our whole time just unpacking these three beautiful words. I've got three points for us to examine. We're going to be looking at the He Who is it that offers this salvation to us? The us. What is the condition that we would find ourselves in that we need to be saved in the first place? And then the salvation. The salvation that God continues to work. Firstly, we're going to begin with with He. Who is God? I know when you dedicate one-third of your sermon to discussing who God is, you really are only going to be scratching the surface. But if I could sum up in a few minutes, I always like to start from the beginning. And we see that when you begin the Bible, God is the one who creates heaven and earth out of nothing. And unlike everything else that we see, God is eternal and He is Lord over all that He has made. One author, when writing on the doctrines of God in his systematic theology, he organizes everything around the overriding biblical theme of God's lordship. He says, you want to see what the Bible says about God? It says that He is Lord. The Old Testament, God is Lord. The New Testament, Jesus is Lord. And as Lord, He has the power to control all things. He has the authority to exert His Lordship and He relates with His creation through His covenant presence. So God is in sovereign control, He has complete authority and He has His covenant presence. As I said, there's far more things that we could discuss than we can get into 
right here. But when looking at this text, I want to highlight three aspects that we see about God. Three bits of information that we see of God in this text. First thing we see here is is God's character. We know already that God is holy, He is just, He is righteous, He is true, He is eternal, He is all-powerful. And in this passage we see, verse 4, that He is good and He has loving kindness. In verse 5, it says that He saved us according to His mercy. So we see He is merciful. Verse 7, we are justified by His grace. So God is, is gracious. Rather than treating us on account of our sin, treating us the way that we deserve, God demonstrates His goodness, His loving kindness, His mercy, and His grace. These are some of the most sweetest words in the Bible that we could ever hear. If there is any hope for us as a lost people, it must start with the goodness and loving kindness and mercy of our God. And that's what we see here in these verses this morning, the character of God on display. Second thing I want to notice us to notice about, about God is His triune existence. That God is one and He exists in three persons. We see all three persons of the Trinity at work in salvation in these verses. God the Father is credited with initiating the process of salvation on account of His goodness and His loving kindness. God the Son is the one who actually appeared and accomplished salvation upon the cross. And God the Holy Spirit is the one poured out through the Son applying the work of salvation to the life of the elect. He washes, He renews our regeneration. We're going to talk about these, these aspects of salvation in a few moments, but at this point it's enough to see that God is the one working. Three persons in different aspects of salvation. Each person of the Godhead is fully God and shares the same essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But at the same time, they are distinct from each other and are working out various aspects of our salvation. One and working. Unity and diversity at the same time. The third thing that we see about God from these verses is that He appeared. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. One of the things that we've already seen in the book of Titus is that God has appeared. If you look at the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, referring to Jesus' first coming on earth. And a couple of verses later, in 13, we anticipate the glorious return of our God and Savior, the appearing, His second coming. This idea that God has appeared to us tells us something about our God. It tells us about who He is. That God would reveal Himself to His creatures through His prophets, through signs and wonders, through mighty acts of deliverance, through His perfect Word, and of course, most perfectly, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God desires to be in a relationship with His people. And it is at great cost to Himself. He appeared to mankind. He subject His Son to every form of evil and malice so that He might communicate His grace to His people. He saved us. Just thinking about who God is should take us up in awe and reverence. Thinking about what He's done, that alone should cause us to worship and to praise the great and glorious and holy and gracious God. How is it that He might come and deal with the people that have fallen and broken? Secondly, I want to talk about the us, human beings, mankind. What is the condition that we find ourselves in? Why is it that we would need to be saved in the first place? The testimony of the Bible is that human beings are in a perilous condition apart from faith in Jesus. We get a very unflattering picture of human nature in verse 3, so let's look there together. Notice Paul says to Titus, For we ourselves were. And then he lists all these adjectives. These things that he lists, these are not theoretical problems. This is not hypothetical sin. He's saying that you and I were guilty of these things. We have this notion that hypothetically, theoretically, yes, I know I'm a sinner, I know I was saved. But we were guilty of these things. You and I have committed these sins. Not all of us have sinned to the full extent. Not all of us are guilty of every possible sin conceivable. But we are guilty nonetheless. It says we were once foolish, we were ignorant, we were without spiritual understanding, we were disobedient. And that disobedient was primarily towards God, but it expresses itself in our relationships with different people, towards our parents and towards authorities. It says we are led astray. We've been deceived by sin. We've been tricked into veering off the correct path. Like in the book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who was met by Mr. Worldly Wise Man, He says there's a much easier way to get rid of that pack on your back and he's led astray. The verse says that we are enslaved to various passions and pleasures. We're enslaved to sin. We're enchained to evil desires and we weren't able to do anything about it. We had given ourselves over to human lusts. We're passing our days in malice, and envy, we are going on living life with ill will towards others. We stew in our own covetousness for the things that others have. And finally it says that we are hated by others and we are hating, that we hate others and that we are hating one another. Sinners, we mutually hate one another. The culmination of our foolish ways and self-absorbed lives is our hatred towards one another. In our fallen state, we loathe each other because no one is able to give what we want, which is worship, self-worship, praise for ourselves. 
The Bible says that as a result of our sinful state, we deserve death and condemnation. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of the, or the payment of sin is death. The death of the wicked is not just an end of existence. We don't just pass from this life into nothing. The Bible teaches that those outside Christ will experience eternal punishment by a holy God. And this is what each one of us deserves in our rebellion. That's the condition that we were in if we have not trusted in Jesus Christ. That's the condition that we find ourselves in still if we have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we move on to the hope or the salvation that God has worked, I want us to think for a couple of moments about why it's helpful for us to review or why it's helpful for us to think about or remember who we were before we were in Christ. So I have a few reasons why it's helpful for us as believers. First, that it fuels our thanksgiving. When we remember the depths of our depravity, how could we not give God thanks for his gracious work of salvation that he has wrought? Remember when Jesus is invited to a meal at Simon's house in Luke chapter 7. A woman comes and and he bathes his feet with her tears and and wipes them with her hair and she's rebuked for that. What does Jesus say to Simon? He says, those who have been forgiven little love little. But those who have been forgiven much love much. Luke 7 verse 36 through 50. We are, the greater we are aware of our sins, the more profound our gratitude and our affections will be for the Lord. Some of us have very weak affections for the Lord. We know in our minds, of course, I'm a sinner, I'm saved by grace, but we can think, you know, I'm pretty good. I just need a little tap across that salvation line. I just need a little shove, a little help. I'm just a little sinner. But you know what? If that is our attitude, our affections will be that big also. The more we realize that we were disobedient, that we were led astray, that we were enchained to our passions and lusts, the more we see that we were utterly lost, that we were stuck in the miry clay, that we were going under in the pool This is not just a little tap across the salvation line. This is a complete rescue. This is a complete life where there was death before. When we get that, how great should our thanksgiving be to the Lord, to our Savior, the one who has got us there? Second reason why it's it's helpful for us to be aware of of who we were is that it gives us grounds to call others to obedience in Christ. It gives us grounds to call others to obey Christ. Look at verse 1 of of chapter 3. Paul begins this chapter by saying, remind them to be submissive. Then he goes on with six other commands about how the Christian faith ought to express itself express itself in our relationships. Remember, Paul is 
is writing to Titus, who is a pastor at Crete, and so he's expecting that Titus is going to teach his church these things. He's going to teach them the gospel, and he's going to teach them the implications of the gospel. Then look at verse 3. He says, For we, for we ourselves were once foolish. This for here links verses 1 and 2 with 3. This is what we all used to be, is what Paul is telling Titus. And because of that, you ought to command, you ought to teach, you ought to urge your people to live as you do. From the basis of one who struggled with the same things, we can appeal to our brothers to put off the old self and to live in a relationship with others as Christ intended. I've been there, you've been there, we've all been there. And therefore we can urge others to put off the old self and live and go together in obedience towards Christ. The third reason why it's helpful for us to understand human nature is that it helps us to understand non-believers. Why should we expect a a non-Christian to behave differently than the nature that they have? We all have non-Christian friends or or family or or co-workers. And they do not value the same things that we do. They do not show the same courteousness or gentleness that we do as believers. We need to remember the condition that they are in. They are depraved. They are disobedient. They are enslaved to various passions. And they are not operating with the same moral compass that we do. That doesn't mean that every non-Christian is, is less kind than a Christian. There are many non-Christians who are far nicer people than many Christians. I have several work friends who would give the shirt off their back if they could. But kindness alone does not change our inner nature or our inner bent. Are we bent on ourselves or are we bent on the Lord? Because if we are bent on ourselves, God says that we are being disobedient and we are not following Him. We are being led astray by something else. Just being nice is not the same as being right with our Creator. So if we understand our, our human nature, it helps increase our thankfulness, it helps us call others to obedience. And it helps us to understand non-Christians. That's the us. He saved us. It's the condition that we find ourselves in. And how is it possible that God could be, that God, a holy God could be right with a wretched people? Lastly, we look at the salvation. The salvation that God has worked. We're going to talk about the grounds of our salvation or the foundation of our salvation, the means of our salvation, and then finally, the result of our salvation that we see from these verses. Firstly, the grounds for our salvation is God's mercy. It is not our works of righteousness. Look at at verse 4 with me. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Saviour appeared, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It should be obvious from 
verse 3 that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Look at this list. This is what we were in verse 3. We were completely hostile to God by nature. And Paul goes on from verse 3 to say that it is God who initiates salvation. It is from His goodness and His loving kindness. And he says that He saved us by His own mercy. He saved us because of what Christ did on the cross. And it is His decision to extend mercy to sinners. It is not on the account of some merit or some worth or some obedience or some decision from us. There is nothing we can do to add to or attract God's attention to us. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves more acceptable to Him. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2 tells us. We apprehend this faith. We receive this faith, this gift of faith. But we must not confuse faith with an act or a work of righteousness. Faith itself is a gift from God. And He grants this to His chosen ones as His Spirit regenerates. And so it follows that if there is nothing we can do to contribute to our own salvation, then it must be God who determines whom He will save according to His good pleasure. The good news is that God has seen fit to save some sinners according to His grace. He could have just passed over all of us on account of our weakness. There is nothing that we can do. We do not deserve salvation. But yet we are left to marvel at our deliverance. Our salvation is based only on God's mercy and not on anything that we can do. Paul goes on to explain the means of our salvation. He says, we are saved by what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And he goes on to say that we are regenerated and we are renewed by the Holy Spirit. That's how salvation is brought about for us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit applying it in our lives. Look at the second part of of verse 5. It says, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. These two phrases, they're pointing to the same reality, the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about life in a new believer. These two terms, although they're saying the same thing, regeneration, which means to give life or new birth and renewal, which means make new. The Holy Spirit is applying the work of Christ when He is poured out richly upon a person, it says in verse 6. It's what Jesus is talking about when he says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says a person must be born again. This is the regeneration that we are talking about. You need to receive new life from the Spirit. Jesus goes on to say there that the Holy Spirit is like a wind which no one can see. You can hear it. You can see the impact from it, from where it blows, but you cannot see it. It's like the wind blowing in the desert. You see the whirlwinds of sand move. You see the wind, the leaves picking up, the wind picking up the leaves and blowing it around. And Jesus is saying, this is like the Holy Spirit. We do not see the Holy Spirit itself, but we see the impact of it as it swirls around 
And suddenly, there's new life. Suddenly, something has sprung to life where there was no life before. The Holy Spirit is at work bringing new life. For believers, it's no different when God works in their lives. Their lives are utterly changed. Our hearts have been turned from stone to flesh. We were made alive where we were once full of dead bones. We were set free from bondage of the devil. And now we are slaves of righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we have become a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. One author writes that God has not repaired us. He has made us new. We are not just getting a makeover or a refresh. We are getting completely torn down and rebuilt. Thanks be to God. This is not just a a duct tape fix. God has made something completely new. Look back at that list in in verse 3. Foolishness, disobedience, being led astray. If the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, if you have been changed by Him, if you have been regenerated by Him, this list describes you no longer. It is not true of who you are. It does not mean that we do not struggle with sin in our lives, but no longer is sin our identity. We are a new creation in Christ. Paul goes on to tell us more about salvation. He says in verse 7 that we are not only made new, but we are justified by His grace. Justification, speaking of being made right with God. The word justification, it carries with it legal connotations. Namely, that on account of Jesus' death on the cross, we are declared righteous. Our sin was put upon Him, and His righteousness is put upon us. Our debt is cancelled. We are being credited with something that isn't ours. This is something that we could never earn. It is something that is freely given. It's what we call imputation. The imputation, the putting on of Christ's righteousness to us. It is credited to us as if it were our own. We couldn't earn it, but yet we receive Christ's righteousness. And in the same way, Christ takes our sin upon Him. And He pays it, and it's done, and He takes it, and it is forever taken away. Our legal status as a sinner is forever changed. This means that no matter how consumed we may be with our our school or our uni work, we will never be justified by our grades. No matter how we are invested in parenting, we will never be justified by how our kids turn out. No matter how much money we earn, we will never be justified by our salary. This is good news for us. But still, sometimes we, we can understand and we can define justification and we know what it is, but we still slip back. We can easily think, I am justified by what other people see that I do or how that I behave. We are to rest only in the justification that comes by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the means of our salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit, the accomplishing work of Christ upon the cross, and the justification that we have received. And thirdly, the last phrase of of verse 7, we see the result of our salvation. Verse 7 begins with, with two words, so that we've been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, we've been justified by His grace, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. An heir is, is someone who's been given something usually by a family member, and that's exactly what we become when we become one of Christ's. We are taken into God's family. We are His sons and His daughters. Our justification is necessarily accompanied by our adoption into Christ's family. And as His children, He promises us a heavenly inheritance. All of us live with with different kinds of hope, earthly hopes. It may be some inheritance from mum and dad or, or grandma's beautiful china, may not be an inheritance necessarily. Maybe it's thinking about getting married or, or thinking about having kids. Maybe all your hope is laid on being retired or, or being done with work. Whatever it is, we have hopes, we have longings, we have desires. And they're not all bad. Many are very good. But as children of the Most High God... He promises us an inheritance that is far greater than any earthly hope that we could ever set our hearts upon in this life. Verse 7 says, We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the goal of our salvation in Christ. This is the end for which we are saved so that we might spend an eternity with Him. Some of us may be burden this morning. Maybe some of us are are grieving loss. Some feel the weight of our sin or the abuse of someone else's. The gospel is the message of hope. Because for believers, the end of the story is the best part. God himself is the best part and he is guaranteed by his spirit that he will bring us safely home to dwell with him for all eternity. It's the goal of our salvation. It's the basis for all of our hope. He saved us against all odds, against anything that we could conceive of or imagine. He saved us. God, the the holy creator of the universe, saved us by His Holy Spirit, by the work of His Son upon the cross. The us fallen broken, sinful, rebellious people. The gospel ought to lead us to worship this morning as we think about this simple phrase, He saved us. Maybe there are some here this morning who have not put their faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe this is a message that you've heard as a child, you prayed a prayer but you aren't really seeing any fruit in your life. You're not seeing if you're really made you or not. Today may be the day of your salvation. If you feel 
a burden upon your soul. It may be that the Holy Spirit is, is at work calling you, waking you up to respond to God's grace, prompting you to turn away from your sin and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would urge you not to let these promptings leave you this morning without first speaking to someone about it. Many of us here, we know this message. We know this salvation and we love it. That's why we are here this morning fellowshipping with one another. What a privilege it is to gather and to remember and to recount and to think through God's glorious work of salvation. As we go into this next week, let us turn our hearts in thanks for the infinite number of things that God has done for us. But first, let that thankfulness come out of, flow out of, be grounded in this beautiful truth that God saved us. Thanks be to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we acknowledge Your greatness, Lord, Your loving kindness and Your faithfulness to us, Lord. Despite our failings, you continue to work and to will, Lord, in our lives. You've drawn us to yourself, Lord, and for this we are eternally grateful and we look forward to that eternity with you whereby we can praise you and worship you for all time, Lord. We thank you for your work in our lives. We pray that this week, Lord, that you would be at the forefront of our lives and that we might image you more and more daily, Lord. We pray these things now in your precious, holy, wonderful name. Amen.